Please pray with me. Mighty God, speak. Speak, O Lord. The scripture has been read. Your word is proclaimed. We might hear and receive with joy what you would say to us this day. Speak, O Lord, till your church is built and the earth is filled with your glory. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. It's time to grow up. Have you ever heard those words? Maybe spoken to you. Maybe you're speaking them to someone else. It's time to grow up. This is the message we hear from our reading from the letter to the Hebrews this morning. We're almost halfway through the epistle. The author is in the middle of a discourse on the priesthood of the Lord Jesus when he interrupts himself. About this we have much to say, and it is hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing, for though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness since he is a child. He says, What I want to do right now is serve up some delicious Texas barbecue, but I feel like what you need me to do right now is to hand you a sippy cup. Obviously, there's nothing wrong with being a child, if you are, in fact, a child. Nobody expects an infant to be ready for grown-up food. Of course not. But if a full-grown, intelligent 40-year-old starts whining and crying for his bottle, we have a problem. Young children have to acquire speech. They have to learn how to read. That's normal. But if a college senior is still trying to get the hang of the alphabet, we say something has gone terribly wrong with her education. A newborn is beautiful. But a newborn baby has to grow in order to stay alive. Because living things are meant to develop, to mature. We know this. What we see in the letter to the Hebrews is that the same thing holds true for our spiritual lives. It's not enough to be born anew, to be born of God. That's a wonderful, beautiful thing. Praise the Lord. But we're born so we can grow. We're made for maturity. We're meant to hunger for solid food, to keep seeking and learning and cultivating godliness, as Hebrews puts it, having our powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. It's what maturity looks like. And as we mature, it says we're meant to be able to teach others, to help them grow as well. If we imagine that we can just plateau or tread water and stay where we are spiritually, we're deceiving ourselves. Notice what the inspired author says. You have become dull of hearing. Maybe you haven't always been. Certainly you don't have to be, but anyone who's not developing is probably in decline. 
You have to grow to stay alive. Now, I should say that one of the things that's a great joy to me about serving at Christ Church is that so often I encounter this holy hunger and desire to be fed with Scripture and the sacraments, to embrace a life of prayer, to take up spiritual disciplines. What Holy Scripture offers us this morning is a word of exhortation and edification to stir up that desire, to spur us on, to attain the prize of the upward calling of God in Christ Jesus. The author of Hebrews exhorts us in three ways. Now, I want to consider each of these briefly. First, he offers a reminder. Second, a warning. And then third, a word of encouragement. First, there's a reminder. Let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ, he says, and go on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works, and of faith toward God, and of instruction about washings, the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment. I love this rhetorical move, where he says, we're not going to rehearse the basics, but he says it in a way that effectively reminds you about the basics. Classic. Because you can't build anything worth building unless you have a strong foundation, right? So he names these six points of foundational belief and practice, a kind of starter kit for growth toward maturity. This is where we begin. One, repentance from dead works. You have to stop driving down the dead-end road of trying to control your own life. Repentance means letting go of sin, obviously, but also letting go of the attempt to earn God's love. Admitting to ourselves and to God, in my own strength, I'm never going to be the person God created me to be. And two, faith toward God. Trust him to do what you're unable to do. Except that he has already done everything necessary to restore you to God. That the love shown on the cross is enough, and more than enough, to take away your guilt and your fear and your shame and to make you new. How does God renew us? Point three, instruction about washings. First century Jewish practice included a number of ritual washings, but for Christians preeminently, there's just one. St. Paul says we were buried with Christ in baptism in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead, we too might walk in newness of life. We don't do that on our own. Fourthly, the laying on of hands. If you read the New Testament, read the Acts of the Apostles, anytime the apostles lay hands on people, the Holy Spirit moves. And that's still true today. We see this in all sorts of ways, but think about when the bishop lays hands on people in confirmation. We're not just given new birth, we're given power. God's own spirit makes us alive and works within us to help us grow. Fifth, the resurrection of the dead, because this new life, sustained by God's own Holy Spirit, doesn't end at the grave. When Jesus returns, our mortal bodies will be raised, transformed to be like his glorious body. Our growth toward maturity now is a preparation for the fullness of life that he calls us to. 
And then sixth, eternal judgment, because when Jesus returns to set things right, everyone will be called to answer to him. Evil will be destroyed, justice will be accomplished, and the secrets of every heart will be revealed. These six points encapsulate the story of our salvation, our source and our hope. It's a reminder. This is the journey we're on, and this is where we begin. But that final statement about eternal judgment also sets us up for the second part of the exhortation. The reminder is followed by a warning. Lest we should shrink back, turn away and abandon so great a salvation. Look at what Hebrews says. It is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift and have shared in the Holy Spirit and have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come, recapitulating these things he's just listed off, and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. There are only two possibilities. Ultimately, Jesus makes us fully alive, or we say no and insist on dwelling in death. In light of final judgment, that's the only alternative to spiritual maturity. Apparently, it's possible to participate in these holy things, to appear to be on the journey towards salvation and then throw yourself off the train. And it ends about like you would expect. Now, this is speculation, but I wonder if perhaps there's a particular danger that this is hinting at for those who rush ahead and want to be spiritually advanced but have not laid a strong foundation. They're not rooted and grounded in Christ Jesus. We know this from elsewhere in Scripture. Self-exaltation leads to destruction. Whatever the cause, this passage tells us that those who fall from such a height end up rejecting the cross itself. Make it an object of shame and contempt rather than seeing it for what it is, the true source of life. They're ashamed of the cross. They're contemptuous of Christ's work. And so it's impossible to restore such a person to repentance, of course, because their whole life is a refusal of the only possible basis for restoration. It's a solemn and fearful warning. Impossible is an awful word. Now, maybe you hear these verses and you feel a little anxious. I have this conversation every so often as a pastor. Folks who come and say, I'm worried. What if somehow something happens? What if I turn from God and lose my salvation? And I get it. This is a difficult passage, and if you want to talk more about this, if you have anxieties about this, I would love to talk later. Let me know. But I want to suggest that the language of losing your salvation is the wrong question to ask about this particular passage. For at least two reasons. Right? First of all, because that's not, in fact, biblical language. In Scripture, salvation is not something that belongs to me, that I have to hold on to, or, oh no, I, I dropped it by accident, and now it's broken, oh no. It's not that kind of thing. 
No. God is the one who accomplishes our salvation. Our deliverance, our healing is his work that we become partakers in, participants in. It's not so much about us holding on to something as trusting God to hold on to us. That's the point. Ironically, when we start getting anxious about what if I lose my salvation, we're turning our attention toward ourselves and not toward the God who is trustworthy. But brothers and sisters, the God revealed in Jesus Christ is trustworthy. He doesn't drop things by accident. The second reason, I think this is the wrong question to ask about this passage, is that it actually ignores the aspect of salvation that the author of Hebrews particularly wants to draw our attention to. Sometimes scripture talks about salvation as something that has already happened in the completed work of Christ. That's biblical and that's true. Other passages speak about salvation as it's being worked out in our lives right now. We get a hint of that here. But there's a third way that scripture talks about salvation is something we're still waiting and hoping and longing for that we have a foretaste and assurance of now through the Holy Spirit, but it hasn't yet arrived in its fullness. For Hebrews, at least in this passage, I think that's the primary focus. Less on our current status than where are we headed? What's our destination? Notice this parable in verses seven and eight. For land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it and produces a crop useful to those for whose sake it is cultivated receives a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to being cursed, and its end is to be burned. Notice it's near to being cursed. Its end is to be burned. This is not so much a word of condemnation as of warning. What's your destination? What direction are you headed? What is your end? If you hear these words of scripture, if this rain falls on the soil of your heart, and you find yourself responding, that's good news. It's still possible for your field to become fruitful. And that's where the author of Hebrews wants us to end up because after his words of reminder and warning, thirdly, he offers a word of encouragement. Though we speak in this way, these serious words, yet in your case, beloved, We feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. As he looks out at his congregation, he sees signs of growth, a field that's producing a crop. You're already starting to bear fruit. And God is not unjust so as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for his name in serving the saints as you still do. Love for God is evident in the way you love and serve one another, he says. But don't stop. For heaven's sake, don't stop. Don't become sluggish. Don't grow dull of hearing. Press on toward maturity. To the fulfillment of God's promises. We desire each one of you to show the same earnestness, to have the full assurance of hope until the end. We're headed somewhere. We're being prepared for glory. And the best is yet to come. So how do we pursue that destination? Look at the final verse. 
we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness, to have the full assurance of hope until the end so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. Imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. Growth toward maturity happens through a kind of apprenticeship. Learning about saints of scripture and throughout Christian history and following their examples. Looking around to see brothers and sisters who are further along on the journey and asking questions. Walking alongside them, letting you help you letting them help you grow. Now, this takes humility. It's humbling to admit, in some ways, I'm still a child. I need someone to help me grow up. But this is how maturity happens. Hebrews describes those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. Constant practice. Talk to a spiritual director about developing a rule of life if you haven't. Explore the spiritual disciplines. We have a a class about this during catechesis hour. And find ways to serve the people around you. A lot of people in our community, in particular, spend a lot of time in our own heads. We might find personal spiritual practices come easily for us, but... Hebrews emphasizes God's blessing for the acts of love we show in serving the saints. Do something for somebody if you want to grow. We grow through apprenticeship. We grow through practice, and especially these practical acts of love. And finally, we grow through desire. Have you ever watched a little child learning to walk? pull themselves up on things. Then they start sidling along these pieces of furniture. Then eventually they turn and and take a step away. They probably fall down. But they do it again. And they do it again. And eventually they learn to run. They start climbing up and down stairs. They fall down a hundred times, but they don't give up. Why? Well, because we encourage them, sure. But mostly because they really, really want to walk. Because it's natural for them to seek to develop because part of being alive is a desire to grow. Dearly beloved, the Savior is calling us to maturity, to wholeness. As St. John says, to be perfected in love. Or St. Paul says, to attain the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Jesus is calling us to himself, not to be sluggish or hard of hearing, but to step forward and learn to walk and then learn to run. Fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, being imitators of those who have lived lives of faith and patience so that with them, we may attain the prize. And with them, we may inherit the promises of God. To him be the glory, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, now and forever. Amen.